Before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to the first online talk with the EU's High Representative on European power since the start of Russia's illegal war in Ukraine. Josep Borrell, High Representative for the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, will be speaking at our upcoming event on Tuesday, the 29th of March, from 5 to 6.30pm CET on Zoom, the birth of geopolitical Europe. You'll learn more about the language of power. From sanctions, energy resilience and military assistance to refugee schemes and humanitarian aid and the mobilised resources we need to fight back against Russian aggression. How can Europe navigate these new dimensions of power? Before the war, ECFR conducted a vast exercise in mapping the battlegrounds of today's power competition, showing how interdependencies have turned into vulnerabilities. But now Europe needs to use these interdependencies much more geopolitically. With the EU's High Representative as our honoured guest, our panel will explore the birth of geopolitical Europe, as well as diving into this new dimension of European power. Check your inbox for the invitation or follow us on social to find out more. But for now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and we are back again to talk about the war in Ukraine. Um, We're trying to work out what is going on, what uh, the different scenarios for its resolution are and what they will mean for Europe. And to help me make sense of that, we have returning to the podcast uh, our all-star cast of Ukraine watchers. First up is Marie Dumoulin, who is joining us from Paris. She is the head of ECFR's Wider Europe programme and a former French diplomat who has been working on these topics for, for many years. And from Berlin, I'm also joined by Jeremy Shapiro, ECFR's research director, who uh, has also been trying to make sense not just of what's going on in Russia and the post-Soviet space, but also in European capitals and above all uh, in the US, where he's been spending a lot of the last few months. So Marie, uh, why don't we go to you first? Um, How do you see the the situation that we're in at the moment? And looking forward, what do you think the, the kind of most likely scenarios are? So far, what is obvious is that things are not going the way the Russians were planning them to go. Um, The plan was obviously to take control of the main Ukrainian cities through a blitzkrieg, and it didn't work. So now the Russian army is stalled, um, facing a much more efficient Ukrainian resistance than it expected. Um, And it probably is regrouping um, in order to prepare for more offensive actions. Um, We've seen bombings, um, shellings uh, in major Ukrainian cities over the the last days. Um, Obviously, there is a will to target civilians um, in order to frighten the civilian population, but also to make them flee the country, um, which will make uh, the control of bigger cities easier for the Russian army. 
For the perspectives, um, there are basically two main scenarios. One is the Russian authorities realize that this war is going to be um, much more difficult than they expected, and they try to engage in negotiations with the Ukrainians. Um, there have been some indications that talks between Ukraine and Russia are going on and some positive signaling from both sides. Um, we don't know actually what they are discussing, so it's difficult to say whether it will be an exit strategy uh, for Russia from this war. The second strategy is, of course, doubling down um, and engaging in a much longer, much dirtier war um, on the model of what Russia has been doing in Syria. Um, there are indications that this may be what the Russians have in mind, um, including the fact that they have been um, signaling uh, they would welcome volunteers or proxies from other areas, including Syria um, and Central African Republic. So that would make the conflict even more complex than it is. I thought already. they were paying for, I thought they were mercenaries rather than volunteers. They are called volunteers by the Russian authorities. Of course, it's difficult to say that they are paid to come and support um, the Russian fight against uh, they're, NATO. They're paid, they're paid volunteers. They're like our interns. Key guy. Um, that was it from my side. <laughs> okay. So, Jeremy, just before we went on air, you were talking also about, you know, what, what being careful about what we should hope for um, and, and some of the kind of different scenarios in terms of, how badly the the Russian campaign's going? Do you want to to lay out what you're thinking? Yeah, is sure. I mean, uh, look, I can understand why a lot of people in the West and in Ukraine are exulting in the early Russian difficulties in this war, and to a certain extent, so am I. But I think that we should understand that, um, as a as a sort of famous American strategist once said war for a non-aggressor nation is nearly a complete collapse of policy. Um, and uh, given that NATO uh, and the countries of NATO are non-aggressor nations, the fact that this war has started has been, uh, is really a complete collapse of our policy. And what that means is that uh, a Russian victory would be terrible, a Russian loss would also be very bad um, because it will, uh, in the first instance, because of the strategy that Marie just outlined, really end up with a massive destruction of Ukraine, uh, of its cities, of its people. Already two and a half million or so Ukrainians have left the country. That could well become 10 million. Um, and it will, um, it will destabilize, I think, uh, the region. And I think one of the things that uh, we should be worried about at, at, if Russian difficulties grow, both at home and in Ukraine, is that they will see this as an as a vulnerability uh, for to them of, of theirs toward NATO. And they will notice that they have exposed a massive flank to NATO uh, and that NATO is building up troops on the Western Russian border, which is what we're doing. Uh, and they will be very, very worried and very sensitive about the possibility of NATO intervention, which is something that they probably already think is happening and which is very, uh, which is their sort of nightmare scenario and that they will be quite preemptive in trying to stop that. So as the war gets worse, the escalation scenarios, I think, get also more likely and more frightening. So what kinds of escalations do you think are possible? Look, I think all sorts of escalations uh, between NATO and Russia are possible. I mean, I think Obviously, the ones to be most frightened about are the are the sort of tactical nuclear escalations. But the Russians have 
have threatened um, convoys, have threatened up that arms convoys going into uh, Ukraine will be bombed. Uh, they have bombed already uh, what used to be a, an international base for training Ukrainian soldiers just 12 miles or 12 kilometers from the Polish border. Um, and I think that they will be, um, as their military difficulties get worse, they will be very focused on on activities that look to them like military intervention. I think some things to be thinking about are the flow of volunteers. Uh, I think the Ukrainians have their interns too, and uh, there are a lot of um, international volunteers flowing into the uh, Ukrainian uh, military and those to the Russians may look like interventions. So we should be careful about the signaling that it presents. We should be thinking about uh, the types of weapons that we are providing. Um, uh, and we should be thinking about how we're providing them. Um, I think also we need to think about the larger political implications. Uh, in, in the first instance, this is a question of, of China. Uh, I think that the, the, to the degree that the Russians feel isolated, which is very large at this point, and to the degree that they are, feel like they're losing on the ground, they're gonna become more and more dependent on China and the Chinese are going to be able to take advantage of that. And that's not going to be in our long run interests. Uh, and I guess uh, the second thing to be worried about is the is their resort to gas cutoffs. Um, so far, both Europe and Russia have decided that it's not worth uh, cutting off the gas. But I think as the as the Russian economy becomes more isolated, as they're less able to even spend the money that they're earning from gas and as they feel more greatly put upon, they will be. They may look to a gas cutoff for uh, an escalation option. On the other side, what do you think is possible in terms of peace talks, Marie? Well, as I said, there are talks going on between two delegations of uh, Ukraine and Russia um, that have been meeting in Belarus. Now we hear that um, the talks are. Uh, continuing through video conferences, uh, but there should be other meetings. Over the weekend, there were positive signals from both sides that they were discussing substantial issues and had hoped to come to an agreement uh, within the next few days. Um, I only have two remarks. The first one is, on the Russian side at least, I'm not sure any of the people um, taking part in the delegation are entitled to negotiate anything meaningful. Um, it rather gives the impression that people are there to show that uh, Russia is open to talks, uh, but not to, to discuss substance. Um, but, but I may be wrong, and, and obviously the fact that the, the Ukrainians consider they are getting into substance is probably a positive sign. The other remark is, um, at this stage, uh, the feeling is rather that none of the sides has any interest in uh, conceding anything. Uh, both think they are in a position to gain more from the military uh, standoff. Um, and so uh, both are insisting uh, that the other sides should be um, accepting concessions. Obviously, we don't know the parameters of their discussions. We know from the Ukrainian side that their main objective is to have a ceasefire, uh, but they, uh, that they also have been discussing humanitarian corridors. 
Um, we don't know whether more political issues are being discussed, but obviously that would be one of the goals for the Russian side, but also for the Ukrainian side, um, starting from a recognition by Russia of Ukrainian statehood and independence. Um, and I'm not sure this is being discussed right now. If you think about the longer term question, there need to be elements on territorial boundaries between Russia and Ukraine, big questions about neutrality, what security alliances Ukraine would join, also questions to do with security guarantees. Could you paint a picture of that? Or do you think it's totally pointless and that this is uh, purely utopian to think that we're going to end up with some kind of long term understanding? The thing is, um, the Russians have displayed very ambitious and probably irrealistic goals when starting this war. Um, Putin mentioned demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, which probably should be understood as regime change, but we do not know uh, what he had in mind with denazification, as it's obviously not completely um, anchored in reality. Um, and he also mentioned concerns with regards to Russia's security and, um, and, the, uh, and, and the neutrality of Ukraine. Um, at some point, um, the exit of the conflict will imply some agreement um, on territorial um, issues, but we don't know uh, whether Russia will limit itself to the recognition of Crimea annexation or whether it will want to also um, have additional territorial gains, uh, Donbass in its pre-war, um, I mean, pre-2014 uh, boundaries, maybe some sort of corridor towards Crimea, maybe even more. This we don't know, and it will obviously depend very much on the situation on the ground. Um, and Oppositely, Ukraine will not want to uh, concede any part of its territory, um, and at least not uh, not more than it already lost uh, over the last few years. Um, the other issue that will have to be tackled is um, the status of Ukraine in terms of security, uh, whether it should be neutral, um, or commit to not enter NATO or any other um, Western alliance. Um, and for that, the Ukrainians have signaled that they would be open to a discussion on this issue, but they would need serious um, and binding guarantees for their own security. Um, and this is, I, I don't quite see how they can obtain that from a country which is now um, waging a war against them. So obviously they will also expect um, security guarantees from the West. Um, and, and at this point, I don't have the feeling that Western countries are part of the discussion. There are discussions between Macron, Scholz, um, Putin, Zelensky, um, but I, I don't think um, these things are discussed. It's more about convincing uh, Putin to accept a ceasefire than discussing any of these future settlement issues. So, Jeremy, there's a lot of international diplomacy going on at the moment. Do you want to talk a bit about the different elements, Israel, Turkey, above all China? We talked about it on an earlier podcast, but it seems to be a topic in a lot of the discussion at the moment. Well, look, I mean, I think that one of the things that the that needs to be recognised is that 
probably Russia and Ukraine cannot settle this war on their own. I mean, in theory they could, but probably they won't. Um, and the reason for that is I think essentially the point that, that Marie made that as long as either one of them thinks that they can achieve better, um, better outcomes on the ground, they will continue to fight. And that's a, that's a sort of typical military uh, situation, which is that hope is the enemy of peace. Um, and generally speaking, you need you, you need the sort of sponsors of both sides to be um, uh, to be pushing in the in the uh, against the direction of hope uh, and telling them that they need to settle. Um, I think that China can is the only country that can play that role vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, although I'm not at all convinced that they can, but they don't want to have any hope to do, of being able to do it. And I think similarly, the U.S. is the only one that can do that vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Ukraine. And I think that this, again, expresses the, which is something I think is very difficult for us to talk about, but it's the difference, the difference in interests between the West and Ukraine on this war. Obviously, the West is supporting Ukraine. Clearly, it should be, but it but the overriding Western interest is for the war to stop um, well beyond the, uh, the, the question of the specific outcome. Um, and I think that uh, because of the sort of great sympathy that is being felt for Ukraine because of the Russian aggression, I think it's quite difficult to put forward the idea that the Ukrainians need to make some concessions to get the war to stop. But because of the escalation dynamics I put forward, I think that that is really clearly in the Western interest. And I think that that means that that's one of the reasons why I think the US has been reluctant to join all these countries and in getting involved in the negotiations because it's so fraught in the, in domestically in the US, um, but also because they are not, they don't feel like they're in the position to demand that the uh, Ukrainians accept some compromise. And I think that that's going to become a problem moving forward. On the one hand, everyone wants to de-escalate. On the other, they sort of feel that we left the Russians feeling a degree of impunity after 2008 when they annexed Crimea. How do you balance these twin goals? Uh, geez, it's a good question. But, you know, to me, the, the fundamental of, of, the, of stability is not, is not trying to figure out who gets punished and who did right and who did wrong, because these are, you know, nation states and they pretty much always do wrong. Um, but the, the fundamental is trying to figure out how you can reach a settlement that people are, are willing and able and to respect. Uh, and I feel as if um, we have never really engaged the Russians on that question. We've always sort of engaged them on this issue of aggression, you know, that, well, you know, you can't be aggressive towards your neighbors, which is a sort of good international principle, but it's not one that has historically been observed by great powers. Um, what we need to be doing is figuring out how to get the Russians to stop doing this. Um, and I think that that obviously involves, um, you know, taking them on militarily. That's happening in Ukraine and they are suffering for their poor choices. But I think that the difficult wisdom in winning a war, and let's assume for a, a, a split second that some combination of the West and Ukraine can win this war, um, the difficulty is, is figuring out how not to so punish the loser that they just come back and, and fight another time. And that, you know, I think that that's a sort of historic lesson that we've occasionally learned at our cost and often forgotten. And I think it would be important to do it now because it should be easier to do in the, in the sort of flush of victory. 
Do you agree with that, Marie? When I was in Paris last week, people were very worried about letting a bully get away with territorial gains in Europe. Well, basically, I think there are two contradictory aims uh, in in the current situation. One is obviously to stop the war, um, and that requires compromises. The other goal is to stop Russia from being aggressive towards its neighbors, and that uh, requires toughness, and that requires supporting uh, Ukraine militarily also. Um, because obviously we will be in a much better position to negotiate compromises um, from a position of strength than from a position of weakness. Um, Honestly, I don't have a precise idea about how we reconcile these um, these two contradicting goals in the short term. Um, A lot will depend on how things go um, on the ground, but we should also think of um, how we frame a discussion uh, to have an exit strategy for Russia, um, maximizing the costs on the one hand, but also offering um, off-ramps if Russia is willing to take them, which is not obvious because I'm not sure um, that Vladimir Putin is ready to accept anything short of complete victory, at this point at least. Looking forward to the next few months, we've we've heard lots of debate about uh, the question of sanctions and whether we need to start sanctioning oil and gas, particularly if Kiev falls. There are debates about arming uh, Ukraine and different ways of doing that. But what do you think the the big debates are going to be over the next couple of weeks? Okay, I can highlight, uh, I think, a couple, Um, you know, I guess, uh, like everyone else, I've been pretty wrong at every step about the military evolution of this fight, but nonetheless, I'll still claim that I have some sense of where it's going, because um, that's the only way I can have anything to talk about. Um, and I think that it does seem as if we're moving into a stage of sort of grinding stalemate, where the Russians are surrounding cities and bombing them and causing a lot of civilian casualties. Um, maybe taking some towns, but broadly speaking, just uh, sort of destroying the country and um, creating a lot more refugees and a lot more uh, damage. And that's a stage that can last for uh, for several months, um, uh, particularly around Kiev, because it's a huge city uh, and it doesn't seem like the Russians have much appetite for going inside of it. Um, so I think in, the, in that context, if that sort of military analysis is correct, the humanitarian and refugee issues, are, I think, are going to be massive in the next uh, few months. I think that the, the second issue that I would highlight, which might be coming soon, is if uh, to the extent that the Russians are able to take control of the south and the east and even uh, cut off Kiev, there's going to be a, some sort of exile government in Lviv or or possibly even in Poland. And I think that the problem, uh, maybe I shouldn't call it a problem, the issue of of Western Ukraine becomes a big deal. Whether the the West will be willing and able to to, uh, finance and arm a sort of long-term insurgency emanating either from Western Ukraine or from NATO territory, uh, and whether uh, that is in the interests of either the West in terms of uh, the possible escalations that it could cause, and in terms of Ukraine, given um, what a sort of prolonged bloody stalemate that could create uh, 
within Ukraine. If I may add something, um, one of the challenges of the upcoming month was, will be to, to manage the expectations because the war is going to last, obviously, um, with uh, increasingly um, heavy consequences, both for Ukrainian people, but also for our societies. Um, the Western countries and the EU have been very quick to react um, in a massive manner, which was not completely expected. Um, the issue is now to keep uh, options and to keep leverages to have reactions up to uh, what we have been displaying so far um, and to, to show that we are not uh, forgetting uh, what is going on in Ukraine. We are not getting any milder um, and, and the consequences will keep rising for Russia if, it, if, if the war continues. Uh, so that will be one of the, the key issues, and that may be extremely divisive also for the EU, because um, some of the member states will want to keep reacting as quickly and massively as we've done so far. Um, others will say we should keep some of our cards for the future, um, and, and that will be the most difficult part, I think, for the next few months. It's been an interesting discussion, but I think it's still a provisional one. We're going to have to come back uh, many times, I think, to these topics. But for now, there's one thing left to do on that podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf, Marie? I'm afraid I don't have uh, real time to read books right now, uh, but I'm trying to read at least uh, what Russians are writing about the current um, events. Um, and I've been reading a, an article by Kortunov called The End of Diplomacy, Seven Glimpses of the New Normal, uh, where he's trying to just yeah, take the few uh, first lessons of um, of ongoing events um, and see what it says for uh, future um, international relations. Um, yeah, that would be my bookshelf. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm reading a novel. I, I guess I felt like I should read something about Ukraine and I couldn't stand to read any more uh, analysis. So uh, I'm reading a, a book by a a Russian-speaking Ukrainian novelist, Andrei Kirkov, called uh, "Death and the Penguin," um, which takes place in the it's 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 a tragic comic masterpiece uh, according to the cover, and takes place in the early post-Soviet period. And uh, you know, it's very difficult to describe, but I I'll just give you one sense of it. Um, in, in today's Ukraine, all that stands between one man and murder by the mafia is a penguin. So I have no idea what that tells us about the current situation, but it is a really great book. I remember going for a hike with him at a Norwegian literary festival. So that's the closest I've come to reading it, but it sounds fantastic. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do um, let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, giving us a five-star rating and a positive review on whatever platform you've used to download it from and while you're there please do subscribe so you can listen to future episodes we will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast but for now from Marie Dumoulin, Jeremy Shapiro and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal who's unfortunately off with COVID at the moment and our editor is Marlene Rive Thank you.